So we're reading from James chapter 3 from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you, what you, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Well, they say a week is a long time in... Politics. Well, some of you know it anyway. Uh, and we've certainly just seen that play out before us, haven't we? Certainly at a state level. Um, at the start of October, in the space of a few short days, we found ourselves with not only a new Premier, but a new Deputy as well. Uh, now, compared to many other transitions of power that occur in politics, this one was pretty tame, wasn't it? Uh, because that's not often the way that it goes in politics. Uh, who can forget the nastiness of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years, followed closely by the Turnbull-Abbott-Turnbull merry-go-round that we experienced in federal politics. Uh, politics can be a brutal game. Promises are broken. Selfish ambitions run rampant. People don't know who they can trust. And that's all just within your own political party, let alone the opposition. And we've it happens so often we've kind of gotten used to it, haven't we? We've come to expect that this is the way our politicians and our political parties will operate. But luckily for us, churches never experience any of those sorts of problems. Now, sadly, there are too many occasions where we see churches become divided, where they're plagued by bitterness and conflict, 
Uh, and that's exactly what James wants to shine a light on in the section we're looking at today. He wants to help us to understand where division and quarrels come from, but he also wants us to be better than all of that, uh, to see how we ought to be as a community of Christians. James says that division flourishes when Christians take their cues from the world rather than from God. James talks about this being a kind of double-mindedness, and we'll think about that later, uh, where our loyalties are divided. In politics, if you don't know what you stand for, if you're divided in your loyalties and your convictions, you're not going to last terribly long. Well, the people that James is writing to are in the same danger. They're trying to have a bit of an each-way bet. They say they're followers of Jesus, but their lives aren't really reflecting it. And so James calls them out. He calls upon them to repent, to turn back to God and start living wholeheartedly for him. And so he begins by talking about wisdom. And he says there are two kinds of wisdom, that one is from heaven and the other is earthly. Now, when we talk about wisdom, we often equate that with knowledge, expertise, having the right answers. Uh, But the wisdom that James wants to talk about is more about who you know than what you know. Real wisdom comes from God, says James. It springs from knowing God. And it will be seen in the way that you live. Uh, So if you've got a Bible open there, have a look at verse 13 of chapter 3. That's how he begins this section. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And by way of contrast, he says, The world has got a wisdom of its own, and it's very different to God's. Keep going. Verse 14. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This earthly wisdom he's talking about is marked out by two things, envy and selfish ambition. And in the end, he says it's going to lead to disorder and all kinds of evil practices. Now, envy seems like a bit of an odd thing to mention in this context, I think. I'm not sure it's all that obvious how envy leads to disorder and evil. Um, But Wikipedia has a, a great little definition of envy, which I think helps us. It says, envy is an emotion which occurs when a person lacks another's quality, achievement or possession and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. Envy is kind of a hybrid of jealousy and coveting. Um, And even though it seems like such a childish thing that none of us would want to admit to, none of us are strangers to those feelings of envy, are we? In fact, I think we're far more prone to it than we would like to admit. When was the last time you found yourself wanting what belonged to someone else? It might be, as the definition describes, it might be to do with their possessions. You might want their house, you might want their car, their wealth. But I think envy is a lot more insidious than that too. How about someone else's situation in life? Maybe you envy the freedoms that they enjoy, which you do not. You wish your life looked more like theirs. 
Perhaps you envy their health or the relationship they enjoy with their children or the kind of family they were raised in. Maybe it's someone else's husband or wife. Perhaps it's their reputation, the respect that they have in the eyes of other people, their popularity perhaps that you wish you enjoyed as well. What about someone else's abilities, their talents, their gifts, their intelligence, their appearance? When you become envious of what another person has, it will always lead to resentments. It will eat away at your own sense of contentment. It will become a poison in your life. And not just for you, but in your relationships with other people. Earthly wisdom doesn't really have a problem with envy. We might even call it aspirational thinking. But when you can't truly rejoice with someone else for what they have, well, that's the giveaway, isn't it? You're going to fail to love that person as you should. You're going to fail to be generous towards them. Envy is going to affect your relationships in profound ways. You might become harsh or just distant towards that person. You might become manipulative or even slanderous. You you might take some pleasure in bringing them down a peg or two to take away from them what you wish you had instead. Now, in some ways, it may not seem all that bad because it's one of those sins that we can sometimes pretty effectively hide from others. But it will corrode the kind of loving, kind, generous, heartfelt relationships that God calls his people to have. And the selfish ambition that James also mentions here is closely related to all of that. When you're only interested in what you want, in what you think is good for you, uh, that just becomes a recipe for disorder, doesn't it? There is a kind of wisdom in the idea that you should just look after yourself, look out for number one and let everyone else do the same and we'll see where the dust settles. But that's earthly wisdom. It's not the wisdom that comes from God. The wisdom of our world stands in sharp contrast to the wisdom that God would want to share with us. God's wisdom is all about serving others, living in a way that brings peace in our relationships. And we're given this great list of qualities there in verse 17 about what this wisdom actually looks like. talks about it being pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. God's wisdom is a way of living, seen in how we relate to other people. That's how James introduced that section there in verse 13. He says, well, you you think you're wise? Well, show it through how you live, through good deeds done in humility. And that humility he's talking about is a humility that comes from God. It comes from knowing God and knowing our place in God's world. When we come to understand ourselves as we really are, as God sees us, as God knows us to be, that develops a healthy humility within us. And we can then relate to other people in a way that honours them and honours God. 
We won't see other people as rivals to be contended with or to be defeated. We're not going to resent what they have or what they've achieved. The wise in God's eyes are the ones who are loving, considerate, who are peacemakers. It's the difference between heaven and earth, between God's wisdom and our world's wisdom. We can lovingly sow peace into the lives of those around us or through envy and selfishness. We can reap that harvest of disorder and disunity and conflict. Those who are living by the wisdom of the world will end up destroying the unity that God wants for his people. When that's imported into the church, it does no good. Now, none of this is simple or easy. It's not an easy thing to be humble. It takes effort to be considerate of others. But we need to make the effort if we want to enjoy the peace that God wants for us. See, the humble are those that don't need to be noticed. They don't have to insist on everything being done just the way they want it done. Even if, in my case, how I want it done is obviously the best way for it to be done. It takes humility to acknowledge when you're wrong and to ask for forgiveness. We need that if we're going to maintain peace with one another. Being considerate, being sincere with others, it's about more than being polite. It means we do think about others' needs first and we'll seek to accommodate other people, to make allowances for them. We'll be thoughtful about the impact that our words and our actions have on others. That's God's wisdom. That's what we ought to see within a Christian community. And when we fail to do that, well, that's when we see disorder. That's when we see conflict. Going on into chapter 4, James expands on this idea of conflict. He starts talking about fights and quarrels. Um, and he wants to get to the heart of the matter or really the mind of the matter. Because he's just spoken about two different kinds of wisdom. And uh, now he talks about two different kinds of minds, two different sorts of mindsets. Uh, and he identifies this thing that he calls double-mindedness. Uh, he first started talking about that back in chapter 1 and he talks about it again here in verse 8. And he says this double-mindedness is plaguing the church and destroying its unity because these double-minded people are divided in their loyalty. He describes it uh, there in verse 4 in a different way. Verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So these are people who want friendship with the world and friendship with God at the same time. But James says you can't have it both ways. He wants us to be able to recognise that that's where all this frustration and conflict is coming from. That it's starting from within. That there's a battle taking place in their hearts and minds, for their hearts and minds for their allegiance, for their loyalty, for their loves. And he compares it to a marriage. He says it's like being unfaithful in marriage. He calls them adulterous people. Strong language, but it gives us a sense of just how strongly God feels about this. 
when we're unfaithful to him, when we betray our first love. See, we've said in following Jesus that we're going to be exclusively committed to him, the one who has saved us by his grace. But when we allow our selfish desires to control our decisions, to to dictate our priorities, when we're determined to keep chasing after the pleasures of this world, it's adulterous behaviour. James says we need to take a step back to reassess our lives, to think about our motives, to work out where our loyalties lie, just who we're trying to please. The Christian who is dishonest in their business practices with the government, who's motivated by greed, trying to have it both ways. The Christian who tries to manipulate the people around them to give them what they want, well, they haven't really grasped the gospel of Jesus, have they? The Christian who goes out and gets hammered with their friends on Friday night because, well, they want to fit in, it's fun. They haven't really counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. You can't live in two worlds. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. As we heard last week, the Christian who uses their tongue to, to lie, to manipulate, to deceive, then rocks up to church and uses that same tongue to praise God, well, they're kidding themselves. Either you belong to God or you don't. You're either devoted to him or you're doing your own thing. If this is describing you in some way, if you know that your loyalty to God has become compromised, if you've been trying to walk both sides of that street, if you know in your heart that you're trying to be both a follower of Jesus and a friend of this world, it's never too late. But it is time to change. And so in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 4, that's what James says you need to do. He says you need to repent. Or as he says there in verse 9, grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This mourning language is lifted straight from the pages of the Old Testament. It's a picture of repentance. This is how God called his people of old to turn back to him with those symbols of mourning. He called upon them to repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's how they were to humble themselves before God, to go back to him and ask for mercy, to ask for forgiveness. And notice too how he describes the change that's needed to take place. It's there in verse 8. He talks about cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts because genuine repentance is for both the heart and and the hands. We need to change both the way that we think and the way that we act. And of course, God wants that very thing for us. Because notice too, the promises that are attached to all of this. Um, There's a promise here of a new beginning with God. At least three times here, we're assured of God's desire to forgive us, to give us a fresh start with him, if that's where we're at. See verse 6 says he gives us more grace. It says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Verse 8, that 
verse we've heard already, that if we come near to God, he will come near to us. Verse 10, again, humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. We cannot exhaust the grace of God. That's no reason to think we can play God for a fool. But we can know that if we turn back to him, when we return to him, he's a God of limitless grace. His mercy is always ready to be extended to the humble, to the repentant. If you know that you've been taking your lead from the wisdom of the world, if your life is plagued by double-mindedness, if your commitment to God is compromised, will you repent of that? If we say we belong to God, we have to live like it. You can't dabble in the world's way of thinking and living. The consequences are only ever disastrous for ourselves and within the life of the church. We'll never experience the kind of peace that God wants us to have as a part of his people. Turn back to God. Recommit your life to him. Repent. Humble yourself before God and he will forgive you. He will draw you in close with open arms and he will lift you up again. Remember, God will always oppose the proud, but there's limitless grace for the humble.